Welcome to Max and Murphy here on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette here on the 21st day of October 2020. My broadcast partner, Jared Murphy of City Limits, will be joining us a little bit into the show today. And we have a great show lined up with two excellent guests. And we're happy to be back with you here today with a lot going on in New York politics, of course. But there is also national politics going on and at the top of most people's minds. So we have the presidential election entering its final stages. Many millions of people around the country have already cast their ballots and many millions more to come. Voters in New York have started to cast some ballots by mail. Early voting starts on Saturday, October 24th, just a few days away. And I can't encourage people enough to take advantage of early voting unless you're voting by absentee ballot by mail. You should go to early voting, find your poll site. It's very often different than your election day poll site because there's fewer early voting sites. But you have a lot of options for early voting October 24th through November 1st. Plenty of days to choose from, different hours each day. So check out New York City poll site locator or go to the New York City Board of Elections website and find information from there. But early voting starts on Saturday the 24th. And I strongly suggest taking advantage of that. Third, which are expected to be quite long here in New York City. So the 2020 vote is upon us. President, vice president, members of the House of Representatives here in New York, all on the ballot, of course, and the state legislature, all the seats in the state Senate, all the seats in the state assembly. There's also a Queensboro president election happening. That was the result of Melinda Katz moving to the Queens district attorney office. That's on the ballot and a couple of other things. So you can find lots of information at GothamGazette.com, CityLimits.org and other places, and the election is happening. And one of the races that's on the ballot this fall features one of our guests for today's program who will join us in just a few minutes, and that's Farah Soufrant Forrest, who's a candidate for state assembly. And she was on the relatively small Democratic Socialists of America, New York City branch slate of candidates that was very successful in the state legislative primaries that happened in June. We didn't know the results until July, of course, but she was successful in Brooklyn in her assembly campaign against incumbent Walter Mosley. But things have gotten a little tricky where she needs to defeat Mosley again in the general election because before her campaign really got going, Mosley was given the ballot line by the Working Families Party And after Soufrant Forrest beat him in the Democratic primary, the Working Families Party endorsed her. But Mosley has decided to run something of a general election campaign, encouraging people to vote for him on the Working Families Party ballot line. So we're going to be joined for the first time by Farah Soufrant Forrest in just a few minutes to discuss her primary victory over Walter Mosley and how she's trying to do it again in the general election here with obviously a different electorate, but uh, she has continued to have her same campaign message, and we'll talk to her about exactly what that is. And I do want to know for everybody that we invited Assembly Member Walter Mosley to also join us, but he and his campaign did not respond to multiple inquiries and invitations. 
So we have Farah Safran Forrest, the Democratic primary winner, joining us in just a few minutes. So we'll hear about her campaign and this group of DSA candidates that she's part of that includes Assembly and State Senate candidates and, and some incumbents uh, who we've been joined with on the show recently, including Brooklyn State Senator Julia Salazar and Brooklyn State Senate candidate Jabari Brisport. We had both of them with us in recent week. And they're part of this group of Democratic Socialists for America backed candidates that are really looking to shake things up in Albany and had a lot of success in the primaries, including knocking off a couple of incumbents, Farah Front Forest being among those who beat an incumbent in the Democratic Party primary, as I mentioned. And so we'll talk with her about her agenda, their agenda, uh, what they think and she thinks of Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is seen as something of within the Democratic uh, Party, at least an opponent of the left wing that Sufran Forrest is part of. So we'll talk with her in just a few minutes about all of that. Later in the show, we are going to be joined by Jennifer Jones Austin. She's the CEO of F. PWA, and uh, that is for folks who aren't familiar with FPWA, that is the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, and they really just go by FPWA, but Jennifer Jones Austin's been the CEO there for a while. It's an anti-poverty organization, social advocacy organization that promotes social, economic well-being of New York, of New Yorkers, but especially, of course, the most vulnerable in the city fighting for public policy to help lift people up. Jennifer Jones Austin, though, doesn't just lead FPWA. That would be enough, of course. But she also is the recently named chair of the Board of Corrections. So we're going to talk with her about prison reform. And she was recently named to an NYPD reform committee that the mayor and police commissioner Dermot Shea formed. And Jennifer Jones Austin is now part of that effort. That was a response to an executive order that Governor Cuomo issued earlier this year in response to the Black Lives Matter movement calling for police reform. Governor Cuomo issued an executive order telling all localities they needed to reimagine policing and submit plans to the state in order to receive state funding for police departments in the next state budget. Now, state funding for police departments to the NYPD is a relatively small portion of the NYPD's several billion dollar annual budget, but it's still significant and the governor still ordered it. And so the mayor and the NYPD are now engaging in a reimagining process. And Jennifer Jones Austin is among the leaders of that process, working with the police commissioner, working with the mayor's office and working with community partners. And they've started to engage in a series of community meetings to get feedback, to talk about reimagining policing, reimagining public safety. There's been a big debate about that, of course, as you all know, and as we've discussed on this show a number of times, there are different visions for what the police department should do and not do. And so we'll talk with Jennifer Jones Austin at about 530 on those topics and more, what needs to be done to fight the growing poverty crisis in New York City that has been a problem for a long time, but also is has been exacerbated, obviously, by the coronavirus pandemic and its fallout. Uh, so we'll talk with Jennifer Jones Austin about fighting poverty, about police reform, about prison reform, and more when she joins us later in the show. 
There's a lot to get to. Real quick, before we bring on our first guest, Farah Sufran Forrest, the Assembly candidate from Brooklyn and one of the uh, slate of the Democratic Socialists of America New York City branch in just one moment, I do want to point out to folks who are curious or who live in some of these COVID cluster zones that have popped up in Brooklyn and Queens, the governor today made an announcement about shifting some of those regulations. So I encourage everyone, if you are either interested in or have a real stake in what's going on in some of those communities, which cover a pretty wide swath of Brooklyn and parts of Queens, you should look at what the governor announced today. I can't go into all the detail now, but because some of the positivity rates for COVID have come down in some of those areas a little bit, the governor announced some shifting guidelines for some of those communities and we're watching all of this unfold as we wait to see where there might be other COVID clusters, the infection rate creeping up in different places. Uh, the governor predicts that the fall and the winter will see some other COVID clusters pop up. So how the state and the city are handling these in the places they are currently existing is obviously of utmost importance as we eye the continued reopening of schools the continued resumption of, of business, more people riding public transit, and all the activities that hopefully will continue to go fairly smoothly as the as the city and state continue to recover. But there are not going to be no infections and no positive results. So we're watching how the state and the city handle all that. And the governor announced some new regulations. All right. So there's a lot more to discuss in New York politics, but let's bring on our first guest today. She is Farah Soufran Forrest. She's an assembly candidate in Brooklyn, the 57th Assembly District. She's also a nurse, a tenant organizer, and she won the Democratic primary in this district, beating an incumbent, Walter Mosley, in to represent neighborhoods including Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Prospect Heights, parts of Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights. And we are very happy to be joined by Ms. Soufran Forrest now. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Ben, for having me today. So why don't um, give give folks a little bit of a sense of your background and what brought you to run for office in, in the first place uh, in this year's election? Yeah, so I am um, Haitian-American, and that is significant because I had a very deep background in activism from a young age. My dad, who was very politically awoke, awake, excuse me, um, used to take me on protests, um, particularly around um, police brutality when Abner Lima um, was brutalized by police officers at a station. Um, I got into this political fight um, because our housing was insecure. Um, we, were being we were being transformed from a rent-stabilized apartment building to luxury condos, and I just knew my landlord would stop at nothing to harass us to make sure we all get kicked out so he could make money off of the units that we have um, inhabited for years. Some of the tenants in the building have lived in the building for over 40, 50 years, and I just couldn't stand it. So. I formed my tenant association, but I knew I couldn't do um, a lot of the work alone. So I reached out into the community and got in touch with the Crown Heights Tenant Union and organized with them. But um, 
working in Crown Heights, you just see that the same story is going over and over again. Housing is not a human right, and it should be. And so joining the Housing Justice for All Coalition, um, we're doing trainings around the city and eventually um, participating in demonstrations in Albany that culminated on June 2019. And that final demonstration really just... um, really the legislators as far as what priority and who they should be um, making sure uh, remain in their homes. And so that's that after that demonstration, when, you know, for housing, we were being beat up, we were being arrested. I just saw that this was the time to take matters into our hands and make sure we have people like me representing issues that we care about. So um, say a little bit more about the specifics of what you're fighting for, what you've um, pledged to fight for. If elected, it helped you to become successful in the Democratic primary for state assembly in Brooklyn, in your district. Um, What are some of the sort of top planks, the top um, policy promises, goals that you've made during this campaign? Right. Um, As a nurse, First and foremost, I care about healthcare, and I believe that healthcare should be universal and accessible to all. So I am a champion for the New York Health Act, and specifically talking about universal healthcare, this idea that it's supposed to be for everyone. Um, housing as a human right um, to expand affordable housing for um, many in the district that are insecure and really adjusting um, not only the stockpile to, to protect rent stabilized units, but extend protection to market rate tenants and um, really adjust the development of new housing and make sure we adjust our um, the adjusted median income. But basically what is affordable? What does that actually, what does that number mean? Um, and also, mm-hmm. In light of everything, the environment, we cannot forget that the environment is part of our health. And so um, we really need a movement for, I am part of the movement for Green New Deal and making sure that we have a just transition to public power, um, clean power, and making sure that all of that includes clean, green union jobs. And other than shifting to public power sources, what what are the things um, in a New York Green New Deal that haven't been passed already? You know, the obviously the Climate uh, Leadership and Protection Act. Uh, that's not the right name, but it's close. They, they the governor and the legislature had different names for it, but um, that that law that was passed took significant steps towards um, reducing greenhouse emissions in the state and and creating green jobs other than adding uh, the development of of public uh, power sources and the takeover of that utility by by state government, what what else is missing at this point on that front? Yes. So we do need to halt the formation, well, the creating of new um, fossil fuel infrastructure um, because we just cannot afford to add more. And we really need to make sure that that happens by 2030. Um, We need to, uh, that's a lot of jobs, right? That's one of the biggest critiques is jobs. 
And so having a transition from um, people working on pipelines um, and fracking and then transitioning people to green jobs like windmills or um, solar panels um, and making sure mm-hmm. those jobs are union jobs. Um, we do see some alliances um, happening uh, across the state where they are lobbying um, legislators to increase green power. But again, it has to be union jobs where the um, rights of the worker are protected. Right. So interesting focus on the economic side of the of the Green New Deal, which obviously goes hand in hand with some of the environmental and, and climate regulations that will be involved. So. Uh, we get a little bit of a sense there of, of your platform, your background, your, your some of your reasons for getting involved in organizing and, and uh, public policy fights. But why take on the incumbent that you challenge? Walter Mosley, a Democrat, you know, pretty much, I think, typically seen as a pretty solid liberal Democrat from Brooklyn. Um, why did you decide to take him on? What was what was uh, he failing to do in your mind that, that you decided I need to unseat this incumbent? So one of the centers of my um, platform is, of course, um, people before profits. And I took that pledge to make sure I represent people very serious to the point where I wouldn't even take um, real estate or corporate um, donations. And one of the things that he has gone on record saying is that his contributions to his campaign does not affect his vote. But Let's be honest, um, you are what you eat. And so if you're eating out of real estate developers' hands, if you're um, eating out of corporations' hands, it's very clear that, you know, you're living in a rapidly gentrifying um, district and you don't speak on it. You don't stand up. You're not an advocate. I'll tell you something. um, On the day that we got arrested um, in Albany, at the, in front of the assembly, the assembly hall, I guess you could call it. Um, there, he was not with us. There was one elected official that was standing with us who wasn't getting arrested, but she was with us. Um, but I'll tell you, he was standing on the side with his arms crossed. Housing, the human rights is not a spectator sport. And it's, it's not enough to just sign on bills. You have to be a champion for bills. You have to advocate for bills. You have to fight like your life depends on it. I'm a tenant. I fight because my life depends on it. The life of my family depends on it. And that's the difference between him and I. Hmm, Interesting. Um, And so as you got going in the campaign, uh, you started to accrue endorsements. You have the backing of the New York City branch of the Democratic Socialists of America. You're sort of part of a of a small but very successful slate of candidates um, for state legislature backed by the DSA. What, what's going on there? What's the, what's the sort of shift in power in the legislature that that group is hoping to affect? Um, very simply, uh, we want more transparency. We want accountability. Um, in addition, we do share pretty much the same priorities, but to, you know, when we boil it down to put, putting, making sure that the people that we represent are actually with us 
And so it was super important for us to make sure not only are we elected um, as individuals, but we we get elected along with the coalitions that um, we fought we fought with day in day out. Um, and so that's what we're see- we want it to, to be very clear that this is not business as usual. All of us didn't take corporate money. All of us didn't take real estate dollars. All of us um, are working people. Um, We have two union um, members. All of us had strong um, activism in housing, which is, you know, what we see now. Housing is everything. And so we want to bring that just by being us, bring it also to Albany and send a clear message that... Time to work for the people. And and you're part of, you know, again, going back to this idea that you, you took on an unseated incumbent and that happened in other races too here. Um, you, the, the state assembly speaker, Carl Hasty of the Bronx, uh, wound up, you know, having meetings with a lot of the primary winners. You, you met with him, correct? Yes, I did. So how did that go? I mean, how, how's, how's the, how's the sort of um, process of, of defeating an incumbent part of the democratic conference and then, you know, going to meet with the speaker who obviously backed his, his member there. Um, how'd that conversation go? And, and do you have hopes coming out of it that, you know, some of the platform that you ran on will is resonating with the speaker and he's, He's seeing the momentum behind your platform and and the platform of the other uh, sort of members that won their primaries. Oh, my conversation um, with Mr. Hasty was very, um, actually, it was very pleasant. I, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think you know, to the outside, um, it might seem like, oh, here is the anti-establishment candidate speaking to someone who's very much, you know, part of the, who's the head, right? Um, But I think it was actually very good to talk about our priorities, to talk about housing and where we meet and where we might diverge. But I think that my conversation with Carl was um, very uh, positive in the sense that it would model some of the conversations that I'll have with other elected officials and um, at the end of the day, we have our districts to represent. And so my district has spoken. So I'm here now. So. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the as the sort of biggest sticking points within the Democratic Conference of the Assembly? Forget even having to bring the state Senate along, which can be a, a bit, well, in some cases can be a bit more moderate than the Assembly Conference, although some of that depends on the issue. But um in the assembly conference itself, what do you see as some of the sort of sticking point policies that you really want to try to get the conference over the hump on? There's there's things that the state assembly Democrats passed before the Senate swung to Democrats that then didn't move when the whole legislature was Democratic. Mm-hmm. For example, the first policy you noted, the New York Health Act. Um, but what are what are a couple policies that you hope to? help move the state assembly on uh, in the coming session next year if, if you are successful in the general election? Mm-hmm. Um, I really would like to see, um, after the uh, last writ laws came uh, were passed, 
we had eight out of nine, and the last one was the good cause eviction um, bill. And I, in light of a pandemic where many people are without jobs and, you know, rent cancellation, that's real, you know, eviction moratorium, that's real. It's something that would literally save people's lives because we know if you're evicted right now, you are exposed to COVID because you're outside in the elements. So to good to see good cause eviction pass, to see um, um, uh, Assemblywoman Yulene and um, new and um, State Senator Julia Salazar's uh, rent cancellation bill, that to go through, that would be um, the difference between people surviving this pandemic and submitting, uh, succumbing to it. And so um, that's not an upstate versus downstate thing. This is people across the state that needs to be, that need to be protected in there and be kept in their homes. So that's one policy I hope we get together on. And on the New York Health Act, do you, what do you see as the, as the status of that? You know, there's some people who uh, have argued that, um, you know, the pandemic and, and both, both there being a pandemic period, but also the fact that we saw so much loss of employment and employment is so often the source of people's health insurance that, you know, the pandemic has given a lot of reason to, um, to push ahead with the New York Health Act for single-payer health care. On the other side, people have said, you know, with the disruption to the state, state finances and, and the state budget and state government, there's really no path uh, anytime soon to try to move something that monumental along. What do you think? I mean, obviously you want it to be passed, but what do you think about sort of the politics of it and the landscape? Um, I think that there's some um, false uh, statement. Not statement. How can I say this? Um, there's some rules that we're sticking to that aren't just aren't real. Um, a spending cap isn't real. The uh, Inability to raise revenue isn't real. We have a pandemic where millions of uh, thousands, excuse me, have lost millions. I can even say that. Yeah, millions have lost their jobs or become underinsured. Um, but yet we have 126 billionaires living in New York City that made billions during a pandemic. So money is being made. It's just people aren't getting any of it. And some people are getting all of it. And so it's really, I think, as legislators to really look at the budget to tackle it on and um, spread some equity where we have a sort of budget justice, where we we instill justice into this budget, where we have people um, paying their fair share, um, the Jeff Bezos out there, please pay your share. um, So that way, you know, we can make sure that everybody eats, everybody lives. Hmm. And, um, how, how how do you sort of think about Governor Cuomo in this picture of where, you know, something, again, politics like you're talking about, whether it's the New York Health Act or raising taxes on the, the wealthiest, the highest earners? How do you think about where Governor Cuomo comes into this picture and, and the kind of, um, you know, balance within the Democratic Party that's happening or, or will continue to be debated going forward? Mm-hmm. I definitely see... Um Governor Cuomo as a, a bottoms line kind of guy, um, systems kind of guy. But at the end of the day, the bottom line can't be about profits. It really needs to be about people. And so um, I hope in the 2021 
um, session that we can really look at at the bottom, at the end of the day, um, we have constituents to, um, you know, we have constituents that we need to be um, held accountable to. And so hopefully that will encourage him to see that, you know, focusing on the few um, and sacrificing the many is just not good policy. In our last uh, two minutes here, your opponent, uh, Assemblymember Walter Mosley, you defeated in the Democratic primary, but he had gotten the ballot line, the endorsement of the Working Families Party. He continues to have that ballot line, but the WFP then endorsed you after you won the Democratic primary. What's going on there, and how should voters understand that the WFP uh, gave him their endorsement, gave him their ballot line, but now want voters to to vote for you? Yes. Um, what 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 do I want? Th- what is it important for the voters to understand? What should voters, what should voters understand about this? I mean, it seems a little bit confusing. If, if you know, if I wasn't someone who covered politics for a living and was focusing on this every day. I'd be confused about how uh, a political party, you know, gave someone their their endorsement, their ballot line, and then, uh, you know, saw the results of a different party's primary and, and changed the endorsement. But I guess just in your mind, what happened here on the on the on the on him continuing with this campaign? Oh, um, I think I don't know. I don't know why he would even go there. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm not in the mind of uh, Mr. Mosley, um, but I do understand that you know um, WFP does recognize that as a community leader that I can be uh, trusted to work not only for the community but to represent the I, the the ideals of WFP. So. Um, it's not the first time this has happened. It has happened with AOC versus Coley. So, I mean, if it was worked out then and we're going to work it out now, people understand, please vote for Farah, Sufran Forrest on the Democratic Party line and vote for Joe Biden and Kamala uh, Harris on the WFP line. We need to preserve the line. Um, you know, as long as we educate and talk to voters, they'll, they'll get it. They understand. They're with it. Okay, very good. So um, <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there, but we look forward to talking with you more uh, either uh, between uh, Election Day and the new session or uh, sometime thereafter. But uh, Farah Soufran Forrest, thank you for the time and, and best of luck on the campaign trail. Thank you, Ben. Have a great evening. Take care. And you're listening to Max and Murphy here on WBI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. That was Farah Sufran Forrest, who's a candidate for state assembly in Brooklyn. She won the Democratic primary over incumbent Walter Mosley, but Mosley has continued to do some campaigning in the general election. We invited both candidates to join us, but only Ms. Sufran Forrest accepted the invitation so Assemblymember Mosley did have the opportunity to join us today, uh, but declined. And so that competition continues into the general election, which is obviously upon us. People are already voting by mail and early voting starts on Saturday. Our next guest joins us now, and that's Jennifer Jones Austin. She's the CEO and executive director of FPWA, an anti-poverty 
policy and advocacy organization, and she wears other hats as well, which she is going to tell us about. Jennifer, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Good to be with you both. How are you doing? Oh, actually, uh, Jared had a little bit of a medical um, issue hey. today and, and nothing nothing too serious, but he's not able to join us. So it's just, just you and I. And I'm sorry that I wasn't aware that I just got off the call with the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior uh, in uh, at Harvard, uh, a board that is a center that is focused on looking at the neuroscience behind uh, behavior uh, and and law involvement. So, very very kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and I'm, and I'm sure that applies to a number of things uh, that you're involved with that we we would like to hear about. Um, first, just tell us. Tell us a little bit about FPWA and what it's what it's up to, especially amid the devastation of, of COVID-19. Absolutely. So FPWA is a nearly 100-year-old organization. Uh, it is an organization that is rooted in the Protestant community. The P and FPWA stands for Protestant. Uh, it's an organization that was created several, uh, many, many years ago, nearly 100 years ago, to sit alongside UGA and Catholic Charities at the policymaking table at a time when social services in New York City were doled out based on religious affiliation. Uh, if you were not Catholic or Jewish, uh, uh, identified as Protestant or not, uh, uh, but certainly weren't Jewish or Catholic, then you were uh, uh, farmed out, if you will, to organizations that fell under the Protestant umbrella for everything from child care to uh, child welfare to uh, food supports, housing, etc. So the organization has uh, been uh, in existence for that many years, nearly 100, and over the time has engaged more with secular organizations, nonprofits, uh, than it has with faith-based organizations, so much that today our nearly 170 nonprofit uh, member agencies are mainly uh, organizations that do not have a religious affiliation. And those that do may be Catholic, may be Jewish, uh, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. Uh, We do not discriminate on the basis of religion. And what we seek to do is connect to the community on issues concerning uh, uh, individuals and families that are challenged uh, economically uh, with respect to health and mental health needs, and even increasingly, people who've been engaged uh, with the justice system and are challenged. Mainly, our focus is on fighting poverty and all of the issues attendant to poverty that come with poverty, lack of access to quality help and mental health care, lack of uh, you know affordable housing, uh, lack of strong quality education and early childhood education needs being met, uh, justice involvement, and, of course, uh, the challenges that come with being poor low income, low wages, uh, you know, uh, running the risk of losing your benefits, public benefits, and lack of the ability to build wealth in this society. So we do on the ground work with nonprofit organizations helping to address their needs as their clients are concerned, and that may be providing emergency rental assistance, uh, food supports, uh, you know, uh, trauma-related uh, supports, and then it's also working with government and coming, uh, you know, going to government to affect change in systems policy to address the needs as they are identified on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
And as the the fight against poverty stands right now, we've obviously seen widespread unemployment due to the shutdowns related to COVID. Um, what are the keys right now in the short term um, that are needed to address the increase in poverty that we've seen? So, um, you know, as you have every reason to understand, appreciate uh, you know, all the all the information is out there in the news, helping us to appreciate that those communities most devastated by COVID-19 uh, are the communities that were already struggling before. Uh, individuals and families who already were experiencing low income because they were working in low-wage jobs. And that often translates to uh, black and brown communities and immigrant communities. While we're seeing that with COVID-19, that uh, before we begin seeing surges around the country, the jobs were coming back, uh, but we knew that the jobs had mainly been lost to, um, you know, uh, in the in in the service areas uh, and um, organizations in retail and hospitality and service, uh, I'm sorry, organizations, jobs in those areas, and they were mainly uh, held by low-income people, black and brown people. So um, what we're seeing is that even if those jobs came back, they didn't come back at the same level uh, because we haven't reopened in New York City uh, in our entertainment industry. People aren't coming in droves for tourism. So the jobs haven't come back. Those communities continue to struggle. They continue to suffer. We continue to see that uh, food, uh, food insecurity is a very big issue. We continue to see that people are having problems meeting their uh, financial needs with respect to rent and in some instances mortgages, but on the lesser side with that because many uh, low-income persons, if they had uh, mortgages, many of them lost them during the Great Recession and we never really saw a full recovery there. So we mm-hmm. continue to see problems with respect to uh, rent, uh, getting, you know, paying your, uh, your utilities, paying for food supports, and increasingly we are growing concerned about uh, the education needs, uh, a growing achievement gap for black and brown children, uh, especially children who come from families that do not have the resources to create, quote, learning pods uh, where they can hire teachers who will come in and work with their children one-on-one or maybe as many as three or four children sitting with one teacher. The, the low-income families don't have that. And so the uh, education divide Uh, The achievement gap is growing wider and wider, and it's not just a technology issue. We're also seeing that um, people are presenting, as one would expect, many of us are presenting with mental health challenges, depression, growing further and further disengaged and disconnected. Uh, And we see that a lot in children and with elderly persons and then with essential uh, low-income workers who have to get out there day by day and run the risk of being uh, infected with COVID and bringing it home to their family, uh, their families. So we are focusing on food supports. We're focusing on rental assistance, but we're also focusing on the building mental health needs, the trauma issues, education supports for children, young and old, and then also, you know, how do we address um, some of the other issues that are bo- uh, bubbling up, like the elderly, uh, you know, being isolated, being disengaged. How do we help them? Hmm. And um, are you getting the the response uh, that's needed from the New York City government and the New York State government? You know, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Uh, we all uh, have heard about how the city 
uh, has been uh, financially impacted by COVID-19. Uh, they, uh, the, the city leadership is anticipating that over the, uh, the next two fiscal years, we will see a $9 billion deficit. Uh, Governor Cuomo is anticipating a $19 billion deficit uh, without federal economic stimulus money uh, directly flowing to New York City. We're going to have a problem because that $9 billion deficit comes from the loss of city tax levy uh, dollars, tax levy dollars that, you know, that we get from uh, having a great uh, tourism industry uh, from retail, if, uh, from, from the restaurant business. If those tax dollars aren't coming in, then the tax levy, the city tax, uh, the city tax dollars go down, the budget goes down. And what is cut? What is cut? Those non-mandated services. Right. A lot of the you know, additional food insecurity, a lot of the after-school service supports, um, things of that nature. And so it's a struggle. It's a struggle for nonprofits right now, and it's a struggle for organizations like ours to help raise awareness about the importance of not cutting these programs, uh, harming the people who've already been so greatly harmed by COVID. Um, mm. You know, we get some traction, traction, but it's always a push-pull. Right. Um and, and that sort of uh, is a bit of a, a segue into one of the new roles that you've taken on, which is part of this reimagining of the police department and policing and public safety in New York City. Uh, you, you were announced by uh, Police Commissioner Dermot Shea and the mayor as, uh, as being among the leaders of this new effort. When you go into these community discussions and internal discussions about police reform, public safety reform, are there core principles that you come in with? Are there guiding lines that, that you bring to it in terms of your philosophy about this? Absolutely. First and foremost, that uh, this needs to be a sincere, earnest, and honest process, that uh, this, is, this cannot be a process where it's, uh, let's go here with the community says, oh, yeah, 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 we do that, we do this, we check that box. Um, it's just that they don't know that we've done this. This is not what this process can or should be about. This needs to be a uh, sincere process where the NYPD is hearing the community, hearing and listening to the community about the concerns they have about um, safety and fairness and justice in policing in New York City. So first and foremost, I go in with uh, this, this has to be an honest and sincere process. The second thing uh, related to what I just said, that this has to be about real listening, uh, not just hearing, not just checking the box, but really listening and, uh, and then crosswalking what is being said with existing policies and practices and with, uh, you know, the potential for real reform. And then thirdly, for me, uh, mm -hmm. what is most important is that there is reflective analysis, self-critique being done in the NYPD when they are hearing, when they're listening to what the community is saying, that they don't automatically run uh, over to look at the, you know, the policies that are in place or policies that may be promulgated, but that they do a serious um, critique of what they're doing, how they're showing up in relation to what they are hearing, in relation to what the community is saying. And then fourthly, uh, it's important to me that, um, that, that rank and file, as well as the highest levels of leadership 
in the NYPD are um, actively engaged in the reform process, in the policy, uh, in the policy making, in, and in the build out. And then the last thing I'll say is that I fervently believe that we need to be doing policing reform, but we cannot, we cannot, we will do ourselves the greatest disservice if we as a city, and I'll go even farther to say, if we as a society stop the just policing reform. So I'm also looking at how the NYPD is understanding and appreciating how it intersects with other systems, with health and mental health, with education, uh, with housing, um, you know, with, with neighborhood and community development, with jobs and wages, uh, all mm-hmm. of those issues, how they are triggers for, you know, the stressors that often bring about, uh, you know, police uh, involvement. You know, we know very well that there is a great intersection of race, poverty, and justice involvement here in New York City and across America. And we know that poverty is a very big, you know, a big contributor that not only to the people who are um, over-policed and incarcerated, but also as a contributor to certain crimes. And so we need to look at all of those issues if we're really going to reform, reinvent, and reimagine something. And so are you, are you coming into this? And again, this is just, you know, your, your personal perspective, not asking you to, you know, make any declarations on behalf of the overall uh, sort of effort that just got started. But um, are you someone that comes in thinking there are certain responsibilities that currently have been falling, given to the NYPD, but really should not be under that? Uh, umbrella, you know, there are people calling for the NYPD to be, to be removed from mm-hmm. from most responses to mental health crises, for example. Um, you know, they, they started the process in the budget agreement, in the city budget agreement of removing the NYPD from school safety, returning that to the Department of mm-hmm. Education. Are there things like that that you believe in at the start of this process? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Shortly after the killing of George Floyd, uh, right in, you know, right in the midst of COVID, I took a walk in Prospect Park. Uh, it was the Monday following the uh, first demonstrations held here in New York City. Now, I remember walking through Prospect Park, just, you know, trying to get out in the middle of the day, uh, you know, masked up, walking through the park. And all of a sudden, uh, police, co- uh, police cars come out of nowhere. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I counted 11 police officers who were called by someone because there was a young black man walking in the park. Uh, he appeared to have some mental health challenges. He was, you know, he was shouting at the top of his voice. Uh, he was, you know, um, spitting. And, you know, they jumped out of the cars and they surrounded him. Uh, many of us stopped to see what was going on. It was clear that he was he was he was having some type of challenge, mental health challenge. The situation escalated so quickly because while he was challenged, he was very much aware that there were now like it was like a sea of blue who was staring him down in the face. And what did that do? That only exacerbated the situation. Ultimately. Mm-hmm. Someone from their like their like mental health squad showed up, but it was too late. The situation was already out of control. So yes, I believe that when it comes to engaging with young people in schools, 
when it comes to mental health, when it comes to homelessness, and there are other areas. Just, you know, like walking the beat. Maybe we need to think about, you know, what community policing looks like, and it doesn't need to be the police officer, you know, who's strapped. There are many different Mm. areas that we can and should explore that would help to de-escalate these situations and create a greater sense of collaboration and partnership and really help people get the supports they need. And and you have confidence that Police Commissioner Dermot Shea is is someone open to, you know, some of the sort of more sweeping reforms that that people are calling for. I don't know where what you just said would fall in terms of sweeping or not, but, you know, significant reforms. Do you have confidence that he's he's open to those discussions? I have confidence based on my conversations with Commissioner Shea that he understands the intersectionality of many of the issues about which we just spoke and that he sees that there is um, a role that other um, organizations, agencies, city agencies, government entities should play uh, in helping to address some of the issues that attend communities that are beset with, um, you know, with with poverty, um, educational, uh, you know, um, uh, needs, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, health challenges, all of that. I see that. I have confidence that Commissioner Shea understands that this reform uh, needs to happen. I have confidence that he is earnestly engaging, uh, you know, but I, you know, I also understand and appreciate that we've been down this road before uh, and that it's going to take um, more than a, a sincerity of heart and that we've all got to, uh, at this moment, you know, put forth the best effort possible. And I believe that the NYPD uh, wants to do that. I think that they need to be helped by the community, uh, by leaders, uh, people with lived experience, by uh, community leaders, uh, be they uh, activists and advocates, uh, be they uh, other elected officials. They need to be helped. That's part of the role that I'm playing. So I believe that mm. I'm confident that there's a desire. Um, but I think that, you know, like everybody being held accountable is going to require that we don't just leave it at the desire. And uh, did the mayor have to have to twist your arm to, to get into this uh, this new effort or were, were you were you ready I'm to gonna, jump in? <laughs> I'm going to tell you that uh, as far as I'm aware, the mayor had nothing to do with this as far as I'm aware at the outset. Um, uh-huh. And nobody had to twist my arm. And let me tell you why nobody had to twist my arm. This is one of these uh, these these initiatives, endeavors, um, you know, engagements where I'm already catching hell. You know, do I know enough about policing in New York City? Uh, you know, do do I deal on a daily basis with uh, persons who have lived experience? And I'm going to tell you, no, I don't know all I need to know about, uh, you know, about policing policy. And no, I don't deal every single day with people who have had really devastating traumatic experiences with police officers. No, I don't. What I do have is a sincere commitment to working on issues of inequity and injustice. And it's been demonstrated time and time again what people do know about me is that I take no prisoners. I'm focused on really making change. And so um, I stepped up to the plate because it's one of those, you know, if you're called to serve and you believe that you can do something to impact, uh, you know, these systems, then you better step up and you better do your part. 
And as you do your part, you better bring along with you the people who maybe know a little bit more than you do and just bring your skill set to the table to achieve what you believe is possible. That's why I'm and, here. Um, no arm twisting. <laughs> Understood. And we're just in our last two minutes here, but I wanted to check in with you about two other things. There are still more things that you're uh, leading on and involved with. Um, and we're in our last couple minutes here with Jennifer Jones Austin. Uh, and thank you for the time. You uh, were appointed by the mayor and accepted to be the chair of the board of correction. Um, the, there was an announcement earlier this year that there was a work group uh, being formed to come up with a plan to end punitive segregation, otherwise known as solitary confinement, uh, that was supposed to move forward in the fall. So what's the status of that effort? So this feels a little bit about break, like breaking, breaking news because we are very, very close. Uh, we put the working group together uh, because we wanted to make sure that we had the input of not just the Department of Correction uh, and not just the Board of Correction uh, and uh, our representative is Vice Chair Stanley Richards. We also wanted to have the input of the um, the officers uh, who are on a daily basis working in Rikers and the other jails around the city of New York. So we asked that uh, the um, president of uh, COBA, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, be part of the working group. And then also we wanted to hear from persons with lived experience. And so we asked Deanna Hoskins of Just, uh, Just Leadership to be a part of the conversation in the working group as well. The working group is very close to completion of uh, the plan to end solitary confinement. And uh, it's my understanding that literally in the next several days, they will be presenting the plan to the city of New York and to the Board of Correction, and then we are going to go into public comment. Uh, the, the rule will be uh, will incorporate into the rule. It'll be certified. We'll bring it to the public for comment, and then we will have a vote on the rule, probably sometime in uh, hopefully in the next four to six weeks. That's the game. Uh -huh. Good, good timing there. And and did you get um, Coba to participate in that? So um, I will tell you that, you know, one of the challenges that, and, and this is a legitimate challenge, uh, COBA changed leadership uh, right mm -hmm. when we went into this process. Uh, they elected, COBA elected a new president, and uh, Benny Basio uh, has had uh, many things on his plate, and this is one of the first things that he was confronted with. He has brought his concerns to the table. He, uh, he and his representatives have been at the table engaging with us. You know, one of the challenges that presents for uh, the, uh, you know, for, for the correction officers is, um, you know, they, they're, they're, they are concerned about their safety. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is figure out how to uh, balance the safety of correction officers while not doing harm to detained persons. And uh, it is. It has been proven time and time again that punitive segregation is harmful. It is debilitating. Uh, it is like you know, um, not just a debilitating for the time that one is in solitary confinement, but it can have lifelong consequences. So we're trying to hold two truths. We need to make sure okay. that correction officers are safe and that detained persons are safe too. Well, we will be looking forward to the release of that plan. And uh, I'm glad we had this conversation about other matters, but also got to touch on that. And we'll, we'll certainly be looking uh, for that and to talk with you more in the future about all of this and, and more. Uh, Jennifer Jones-Austin of FWA, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Be well. 
And that is going to do it for this week's Max and Murphy. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. Don't forget to vote. about how to vote in the upcoming election? If so, please listen to this message. You might want to write some of this down. There are three ways you can vote in New York State by absentee ballot, by voting early in person between October 24th and November 1st, or by voting in person on Election Day on November 3rd. The following links will tell you everything you need to know about the three options. In New York State, go to VoteEarlyNY.org. That's V-O-T-E-E-A-R-L-Y-N-Y dot O-R-G. If you don't have access to a computer, the information is available by phone through the New York State Board of Elections at 800 367 8633. That's 800-367-8633. And if you live in New Jersey, you can access what you need to know to vote by going to vote.org slash state new hyphen Jersey or call your county board of elections. Please join in voting in this critically important election. Thank you. This message has been brought to you as a public service by WBAI Pacifica Radio. Joe Biden and Donald Trump face off head to head in their last presidential debate on Thursday, October 22nd. And Pacifica Radio will have national live coverage of the debate right here on this radio station. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Pacifica Radio Sojourner Truth. Join Gabrielle Buelna and me on Thursday, October 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. You won't want to miss our post-debate analysis. We have a distinguished lineup of guests waiting to speak to you. And we'll also be taking your phone calls with the stakes so high in this election. It's so important for you to hear from voices generally, not on mainstream media. It's also a chance for you.